Pray with me. Father, thank you again that we can gather together and open the scriptures to study and to hear from you through your word. And we pray your spirit would teach us this morning. Father, give us attentive hearts and ears. We ask for Jesus' sake. Amen. Beloved, over the last three weeks in our study of the book of Ephesians, we have been talking about resisting the schemes of the devil and doing so by standing firm by, through putting on the full armor of God. And as I've been thinking about that a little bit, uh, this, this whole idea of putting on the armor of God is, is essentially a, a series of ethical imperatives. That is, that it is a, a appropriating by faith uh, our position in Christ and then living that out, but, it, but it, it, it requires us to do something. It is, there's effort involved. And as I think about that, I, uh, I'm reminded of Paul's words to fathers, in particular in Colossians chapter 3 and verse 21, where Paul says, Fathers, do not exasperate your children that they may not lose heart. And there's a Great temptation for fathers to focus on required behaviors in their children and exhort them and admonish them to that kind of behavior without ever taking the time to really instruct them properly in how to change. Just telling them they need to change, but not really instructing them in how to change. And that reality that can happen with a father in his the microcosm of his home can easily happen within the, the church of Jesus Christ. And uh, through the years, I've noted that with all too often, people who, who desire to live for Christ, desire to please Christ, that desire to, to live out the, the Christian life, uh, attempt to do so in the flesh. They attempt to, to do so by law-keeping. And eventually what happens is they grow frustrated in the reality that they are not able to live out the Christian life which they think everybody else around them is being so successful at. And so they either grow discouraged and stop trying or they begin faking it um, so that they can appear to have it all worked out like everybody else. And um, that's not the Christian life. That's not what Paul would have for us. And and as I thought about Ephesians and, and the, the, the articles of armor that Paul would have us put on, I thought, you know what, let's just pause in all of that and make sure we don't lose sight here of the reality of how do we go about uh, living out the Christian life. And so we're going to take a pause from the Ephesians uh, series here, and we're going to turn to Romans. So I'm going to turn you to Romans chapter 12. In particular, verses 1 and 2. And this is a sermon that I have preached before here, but it's been a number of years. And so many of you have not heard it, and others of you who have have probably forgotten it. So it's worth coming back to again. And that's Romans chapter 12 and verses 1 and 2. And we've entitled it, Unlocking the Christian Life. And, and it's, it's really key, and I think it, it fits in nicely with our series on the armor of God. Romans chapter 12 is the transition point of Paul's 
uh, epistle here to the Romans. And, and Romans is Paul's most systematic, most comprehensive expression of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Romans 12 is, the, as I say, the transition point in that letter. Chapters 1 through 11 are the, are the great doctrinal teachings of the gospel. And then beginning in chapter 12, Paul transitions and he begins to present uh, there from chapter 12 through chapter 15 a whole series of ethical imperatives. In other words, ways that, that Christians, in light of the gospel, need to live. And Romans 12, and in particular verses 1 and 2, are the hinge pin that the letter swings on. And so, as we look at these two verses, what Paul does for us here is to lay out the means by which one is able to fulfill the ethical demands of the gospel that he presents later here in chapters 2, or 12, 13, 14, and 15. And so here in these two verses, verses 1 and 2 of chapter 12, we, have, we find four keys. Okay, so our structure is really simple. There are four keys to be found here, four keys for unlocking the Christian life. Okay, let me read the text for you. Romans 12, verses 1 and 2. Paul says, Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. So there are four keys to be found here in just these two verses. And if, and if we can get a grasp on these four keys, it really does unlock the Christian life. And it, and it provides the power to live out the ethical imperatives, the, the changed life that is required of all who follow Christ. So the first key, the first key is to remember the mercies of God. The first Key to unlocking the Christian life is to remember the mercies of God. Look here in verse 1, Paul says, Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God. I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God. Now, leading into chapter 12, there is this great doxology, right? Chapter 11, verses 33 to 36. Paul finishes there with the, with the great doxology, ending there in verse 36, where he says, for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Therefore, therefore. In other words, in light of the reality of who God is, there is, a, there is an obligation that comes to the people of God. And that obligation is to, to live out the, the reality of the gospel. To live out the reality of the gospel. That is, that to live out a Christian ethic, both in response to what God has done for us, in, in gratitude for what God, uh, God has done for us in Christ, but also because we are theologically empowered to do it by what he has done for us in Christ. So it's the, it's the twin motivations that we really have been changed and there has been a power released in us through the gospel of Jesus Christ and in, in gratitude for the, for the change that has happened in us, we want to live out the Christian life. So therefore, in, the, in light of that reality, Paul says, 
is that we are to, to live differently. And Paul calls it here the mercies of God. Do you see it? I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God. So, so what are the mercies of God? This little expression, the mercies of God, is, is really just a, a summary statement of all that has gone on in chapters 1 through 11. In other words, Paul could have written in here, therefore I urge you, brethren, in light of all that has happened, all that I have spoken of, all that I have taught you in chapters 1 through 11, in light of all of that, therefore, there is a new way to live. So, let's take a look here at these mercies of God. Let's just be reminded of what God has done for us in Christ Jesus. In other words, what is the gospel? What is the gospel? So we go all the way back to the beginning of the letter, to, to chapter 1, and beginning in verse 18. And from 1.18 all the way to 3.20, Paul spells out the, the, the terrible condition of humanity. Right? He speaks about, verse 18, the wrath of God revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. So he begins with an indictment here of the pagan world. And he, he articulates how that which is known about God, both internally and externally, because God has made it known, is willfully suppressed. And the kind of terminology that Paul uses here is the idea of an active suppression, like, like holding a beach ball under the water. It takes that kind of effort to deny who God is. And that's what the pagan world does. That's what the unbelieving pagan world does, is they go out of their way to deny God and who he is, even though they know internally and they can see externally who the one true God is. Paul goes on there in chapter 2, and he says, uh, verse 1 of chapter 2, Therefore you have no excuse, every one of you who passes judgment, for in that which you judge another, you condemn yourself, for you who judge practice the same things. He goes on now to indict the Jewish world. The Jewish world. And, and what he says there about the Jewish world is, you know the right thing to do and you acknowledge the right thing to do. You have the very law of God. And yet you don't keep it. You don't keep it. You're, you're guilty of the same kinds of things as those who do not have the scriptures and do not know God. And then he summarizes it in chapter 3, beginning in verse 10, with his sort of concluding universal indictment, right? Where he says, it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands, there is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside, all have become useless. And he, and he goes on with his indictment there. So by doing this, Paul has brought all of humanity and all of us before the, the bar of the justice of God, and we have been found wanting. This is the gospel. This is the good news. It begins with the bad news, is that we understand who we really are without Christ. That, that before a holy God, we have nothing to offer. And in fact, we're not neutral. We're hostile. We're hostile towards him. And so, in that condition, we all deserve the righteous wrath of God, and yet, 
beginning verse 21 of chapter 3 and following through the end of chapter 5, and yet God does not give us what we deserve. Instead, he pours out on his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, the wrath that, that I deserve, the wrath that you deserve. He pours it out on Christ, and instead he chooses to draw us in and credit to our account the righteousness of Christ and to credit to, to his account our unrighteousness and to punish him for our sin. This is the, this is the amazing good news of the gospel. That the terrible position in which we're in has been alleviated by Christ. And, and how do we access this incredible reality? The answer is by faith. It is by faith. And so in chapter 4, Paul spells this out. He says it's always been by faith. Abraham was justified by faith. David was justified by faith. It's the Old Testament and the New Testament. There's nothing new here. We access the righteousness of God by faith. That is, we believe what has been said about who we are, who Christ is, and what he has done. And when we embrace that reality by faith, then we become the children of God. Chapter 5, he, he, he says, he kind of comes back to it, and he, and he says, listen, there's only two kinds of people in the world. And both of them are united spiritually united to one of two individuals. It is either Adam or it is Christ. You are either in Adam, in other words, that, that, that you are united to Adam in, in, in his fall and, and thus you are accountable before God, or you are united in Christ and you experience the, the blessing and the righteousness that comes to you by virtue of that. That's the answer. You are in Christ, or excuse me, you're in Adam or you're in Christ. It, it's one or the other. And praise be to God, by his grace, through faith, as a believer this morning, you are united with Christ. You are no longer united with Adam, and you no longer face the certain destruction that comes to those who are united to Adam. Paul goes on here in chapters 6, 7, and 8 of his letter as he's continuing to, to spell out the gospel, and he's He's building on this reality of being in Christ, and he's, he's saying you died when Christ died. You died, chapter 6, when Christ died. And, and because you died with him, you have died to the power of sin, verse 7, chapter 6, right? For he who has died is freed from sin. In other words, while you are united to, with Adam, you are under the power of sin. You, you had no choice but sin. You, you, you sinned by choice, you sinned by, by compulsion. You had no ability to choose righteousness, but, but when you became united with Christ, his death became your death and the power of sin was broken. The power of sin was broken in you. You are dead to sin. Chapter 7, Paul says, now what about the law? What about the law? How does that play into all of this? And, and chapter 7 simply says this. It says that the law never could restrain sin. It couldn't restrain sin before you came to sin after you come to Christ. Are we still good? We're good. Okay. Man, that was exciting. <laughs> before Christ... The law merely inflamed your passions for sin. 
after Christ, it, it's unable to restrain your sin anyway. And so Paul goes on to say, you know, wretched man that I am. Wretched man that I am. In other words, that if I, that if I try to live out this new life in Christ by, by law keeping, I'm going to do nothing but fail. Nothing but fail. Because the new life in Christ is not lived out by acts of law keeping. The new life in Christ is lived out, chapter 8, by the indwelling spirit. By the indwelling spirit. And so, for verse 1, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. And he'll go on to explain how the indwelling spirit of God draws us to the Father and enables us to call out Abba, Father, and places within us both desire and power to live out this Christian life. We walk by the Spirit, Paul says. And he finishes at the end of chapter 8 by looking around in, in, in um, verse 37 and following, and he says, but in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. I'm convinced that nothing can separate me from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Because he's addressing the issue of, well, okay, this is a new life, but, but, but maybe I could lose it somehow. And Paul says, no, there is no way. Once you have been severed from Adam and united to Christ, there is no way that this turnstile goes in any direction but one. And you cannot lose what God has given you. And so he finishes here in, in, um, at the end of verse 39, and he says, you know, nothing can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And at that point, the thoughtful person says, yeah, but what about Israel? What about Israel? I mean, they had the promises of God. They were his chosen people. They were the elect. And yet, they have obviously fallen. What about Israel? And so Paul, in chapters 9, 10, and 11, takes up the case of Israel. Because he has to be able to answer this objection. If all that he has said to this point is, is to, to be true and, and valid and binding, he's got to be able to explain what has happened to Israel. And so he begins in 9, 10, and 11 to do exactly that. And his message is simply this. In, in chapter 9, he says, Israel has fallen away by, sovereign by the sovereign choice of God. By the mysterious, sovereign choice of God. And he, and he, and he says these, these things that are, that are so difficult for us to, to grapple with. And things like, uh, verse 21, does not the potter have the right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for common use? And what if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? And that, that kind of terminology is very unnerving to us. Because what it is, is it's a statement of the absolute sovereignty of God. And so what Paul is saying is, Israel has fallen away because God, in his, his secret counsel, has chosen that for them. He has chosen that for them. But he doesn't leave it there. He, in chapter 10, takes the question up again. And he says, yes, Israel has fallen away 
But it's not just by their sovereign choice. They have fallen away because they chose to fall away. They chose to, to refuse to believe. Right? For he says, verse 18, but I say, surely they have never heard, have they? And he says, indeed, they have. Their voice has gone out into all the earth, their words to the ends of the world. But I say, surely Israel did not know, did they? And, and, and he says, first Moses says, I will make you jealous by that which is not a nation, but by a nation without understanding I will anger you, and so forth. And he says, for all day long, verse 21, I've stretched out my hands to a disobedient and obstinate people. So why has Israel fallen away? Why did Israel refuse their Messiah? Chapter 9, it is the sovereign choice of God. Chapter 10, because they, seeking, uh, verse 3, not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. In other words, they chose to disregard what God had exposed to them and, and the person whom he had sent to them in Jesus Christ. So they are culpable for their own unbelief. So which is it? Is it the sovereignty of God or is it human unbelief? Yes. Yes, that's what it is. Well, are they cut off forever? Are they, are they, is Israel just been somehow rejected forever? Chapter 11, verse 1, I say then, God has not rejected his people, has he? May it never be. May it never be. No, he has not cut them off forever. Verse 11, I say then, they did not stumble to, so as to fall, did they? And he says, may it never be, but by their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make them jealous. And he goes on and he says, listen, in the, in the plan of God, Israel has been set aside. They have been cut off in order to bring the Gentiles in that they might be grafted in as well into the, into the root of the Abrahamic covenant. But God is not done with Israel. Verse 25, For I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery, so that you will not be wise in your own estimation, that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, and so all Israel will be saved. Just as it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion, he will remove ungodliness from Jacob. He will remove, excuse me, this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Verse 29, For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. In other words, Israel will be recovered someday in the sovereign plan of God. Verse 33. Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. No kidding, huh? And how unfathomable are his ways. Or who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who became his counselor? Who, who said, God, this is the way you ought to do it? Or who has first given to him that it might be paid back to him again? In other words, who has put God in his debt? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Therefore, therefore, in light of that incredible reality of all that God has done. In light of that, how are we to live? That's 
Paul's, the flow of Paul's argument. Now, beloved, why do we say we need to remember the mercies of God? Why, why do I call that a key to unlocking the Christian life? And the answer is, is because you and I are very forgetful. You and I are very, very forgetful. It's not that we disbelieve the gospel. It's that we just sort of forget it day to day in the moment. It's kind of like your father's birthday. Okay? Kind of like your father's birthday. Uh, you, you, you forget your father's birthday. It sort of comes and goes or it sneaks up on you. Now, it's not that you don't remember. If somebody sits you down and says, you know, like, when is your father's birthday? You can probably conjure that up. But the, the day-to-day reality of it is just not there with you. And so we need to be reminded. We need to be reminded of the gospel. And, and the most significant way for us to do that is to participate together in corporate worship. And that's exactly what the writer of the Hebrews says in, in Hebrews 10. In verses 23 and 25 where he says, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and this all the more as you see the day drawing near. In other words, we need to be together in order to remind one another of the mercies of God. This is the first key. This, without this key, <laughs> we are not going to get anywhere in the Christian life. So we need to remember the mercies of God. We need the gospel, in other words, all the time. Secondly, the second key is we need to relinquish ourselves to God. I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, by the, by the glories of the gospel, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God or well-pleasing to God. The idea here is when we remember what God has done for us and in us, then we recognize that we are no longer, uh, we no longer belong to ourselves. We belong to him. We belong to him, right? We're somebody else's property. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20, you're not your own, right? You have been bought with a price. Or Romans 6, 18, we are now slaves of righteousness. So we need to, to present ourselves, Paul says here, present ourselves a living and holy sacrifice. Now this term, to present ourselves, is a, is a technical term, and it, and it speaks of a sacrificial offering. It speaks of a sacrificial offering. Now in the Old Testament, and when, a, when the, vic, the sacrificial victim was presented, the ownership of the victim was relinquished. When you brought an animal to offer, you, you relinquished your ownership of that animal. It became holy. It became set apart to God. And even if you um, consumed a portion of the sacrifice that you brought, you understood that, that all you were doing was sharing in the hospitality of God. It wasn't that you brought your own, you know, sack lunch. It's that you gave to God this sacrifice and God graciously enabled you to, to eat 
part of it, right? He, he was hospitable with you. And I think this reality is best pointed out in the, in the burnt offering, right? Why did it all have to be consumed by fire? The answer is, is so that you would understand it's no longer yours. You give it to God, and it's completely consumed in fire. In other words, it has become his. Now, here we are in the New Testament, right? Paul's using sacrificial language here, and he is not, you know, telling us that we need to bring an animal, but what he is, what he is speaking of here is, is that we now are the sacrifice, Right? And we are to present our bodies, not just merely our flesh and blood here, but the totality of our being. In other words, he wants all of us. We are now the gift. We are not simply the giver, we are the gift. And so we are a holy sacrifice, a living and holy sacrifice. We are set apart to God, and we are also... Uh, there's an ethical component to this holiness. And, and in other words, it's that we are set apart to God and separated from sin. Again, think about the Old Testament sacrifice. You had to bring an animal that was unblemished, right? You couldn't bring just any old animal. You had to bring the unblemished animal. And so as a New Testament believer, the idea here is, is that when we give ourselves, we present the totality of ourselves as a living and holy sacrifice, which is acceptable to God, is that we are to, we are to offer ourselves without obvious blemish. You can't just come any old way you want to. In other words, our lives are, are not to be marred by continual, obvious, unconfessed sin. But we're to... Make, get right with God by confessing our sin. That's why we provide that time of confession in, in every service near the beginning of the service that we might make our, you know, our sacrifice having confessed our sin. Notice also that Paul says that, that the sacrifice here is, is living. That speaks about the, the ongoing and the kind of the voluntary nature of it all. Now, this Sacrifice is, is, is a, a weekly, day-to-day, lived-out reality. And Paul says, that actually, it's, it's a logical thing for us to do. Right? He, look again at verse 1. He says, which is your spiritual service of worship? This word translated here as, as spiritual, uh, uh, logikos, it, it, you get the English word logical out of it. It can mean spiritual, it can mean reasonable actually kind of like the idea of reasonable as a good translation. It's your reasonable service of worship. In other words, in light of all of that God has done for you in Christ and the transformation that has occurred in you, it is a very reasonable thing. It is, a, it is consistent with that reality that we give ourselves to God as a sacrifice. We live for him, all right? So we relinquish ourselves, that's our second key. So we remember the mercies of God, that is the gospel of Jesus Christ, and then we relinquish ourselves to God. We, we acknowledge the reality that we no longer are the captain of our own ship, but we now live for the glory of God. Third, third key is we resist the world's corruption. We resist the world's corruption. And do not be conformed to this world. Verse 2. Do not be 
conformed to this world. Now, the, the grammatical construction here, it's a, it's a present tense with the, with the, the negative, and it, and it carries the idea that, that uh, we are to stop doing something. Okay, not, not that we're not to be, you know, that we're not to begin doing something, but we're doing something we've got to stop doing. This is the idea. In other words, uh, we, we need to stop allowing ourselves to be conformed to this world. We need to resist the world's corruption. Think about it this way. We live our life um, in this world, right? And, th and this world is in opposition to God. And you could think of this world as if uh, like a big ocean, and we're swimming in the ocean, right? And, and it's predictable. If you, if you spend any time you know, down at the ocean and you're out in the water and the surf and so forth, you're going to get a mouthful of salt water. It's just pretty much guaranteed. You're even going to ingest some. But what you're not going to do is you're not going to swim around with your mouth open, Right? You're going you're to keep your mouth closed. You're going to clench your lips. You, you don't want the salt water. And so what Paul is basically saying here, if, if I can use this analogy, is to resist the world's corruption. Do not be conformed to this world. Do not swim around in the ocean of this world with your mouth open. Okay? Resist it. Make an effort to keep it out. To keep it out. Resist the pressure to be squeezed into the mold of the world which is diametrically opposed to God. Resist that pressure. Now the world lies under the power of the evil one. It lies under the power of the evil one. And so Paul's saying is the world cannot serve as our model for the patterning of our lives. The values of the world are Selfish, they're self-serving, they're antithetical to godliness. And so we cannot pattern ourselves that way. I think one of the dangers for us moderns lies in the realm of entertainment. I think it's one of the ways the world gets in. I think it's one of the places where we often find ourselves swimming with our mouths open is in the entertainment world. It is diametrically opposed to Christ and his values. But I think for a lot of us, we, we enjoy the entertainment. I mean, Hollywood makes good stuff. It's, it's, it's enticing, it's in, it's, it draws us in. And so, I think for a number of Christians, they're, they're, they're kind of their approach to it is, would be something like this. I know that the, 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 the stuff being produced in Hollywood is a rancid stew. But what I'm going to do is I'm going to pour it through a strainer and get out the big chunks Okay, you know, the, the stuff like nudity and so forth that, I, that I, I know I'm not supposed to watch. But, but the broth that drains through, that I'll drink. That I'll drink. I mean, there were even filters 
that you can buy that will strain out the chunks and still let you be relevant and hip and seeing the latest movie and enjoy the worldview behind it. Paul would say, resist this stuff. Stop doing this. Stop doing this. We can't allow ourselves to be conformed to this world. Now, as we are, if we don't, it's not that we lose our position in Christ. We're either in Adam or in Christ. And we don't go back and forth. We're not partially in Adam, partially in Christ. We're either in Adam or we're in Christ. And if, and if we're in Christ, there is no Adam anymore for us. So it's not like we lose our position in Christ. Rather, what happens is it, it, the fire cools, the, the corruption and the corrosion sort of seep in, and the damage is done. We, we lose our distinctiveness, our, our savor, our saltiness. And it doesn't happen all at once. It happens over a period of time. Many years ago, we, um, we discovered that we had a slow water leak in our home, in the bathroom. It was not, it was not a noticeable, you know, it's not the kind of noticeable leak where you can like hear the water meter turning. It was just a slow seepage under the bathtub. And over time, what happened with that, that slow seepage is that dry rot set in. And, and the dry rot initially, it, it, it rotted out the subfloor. But it, but it continued to go on. And, and it not only rotted out the subfloor, it rotted out the floor joists. To the, to the point where when it became time to, to fix it, we had to cut it all out and, and like there's this gigantic hole through the floor right down into the crawl space. Because that's the only way to fix it. It all had to be cut out. But the point of the matter is that it occurred slowly over time and the leakage, the seepage went on. And, and, the, and the influences of the world kind of act in the same slow corrosive way. Eventually it shows up. Eventually it shows up. When it shows up, it shows up as a catastrophe. Listen, Christians don't have blowouts. Christians do not have blowouts. What they have is slow leaks that show up flat one day. It's kind of like a, a nail in the tire and you, and you just ignore it. And eventually you get out one morning, you get up and you go out to work and the tire's flat. And you go, oh my goodness. My tire's flat. How'd that happen? And that's what happens in, in Christian lives. Is it, somebody just doesn't wake up one morning and decide, okay, I'm going to deny Christ today. I'm going I'm to violate my marriage vows today. Today's going to be the day. It's not a good day to do it. I think I'll do it today. 
What happens is the seepage builds up over time and the, and the corrosion builds up over time and the dry rot builds up over time and then all it requires is the, is the right scheme of the devil, the right opportunity, and bang! And you go, where did that come from? It's been building for a long time. That's where it came from. Because there hasn't been a, a resisting effort in the Christian life. And, and beloved, that's what we've got to do. We have got to resist the world's corruption. That's the third key. I just realized the clock in the pulpit is not moving. <laughs> that could be good news or bad news. <laughs> Depends on one's perspective now, doesn't it? I've either kept you until 4.30. Anyway. Fourth, the fourth key, right? So remember the mercies of God, relinquish yourself to God, resist the world's corruption. Fourth key, renew your mind through the scriptures. Renew your mind through the scriptures. Do not be, stop being conformed to this world. Stop being pressed into the world's mold. Contrast, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. In other words, allow yourself to be continually transformed by the renewing of your mind. Grammatically, it's indicating here that something that's already in process needs to continue. There is a renewing process that has begun. When, when you came to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, a renewing process began. And it will continue all the way until Christ takes you home. This process of, of being renewed, being transformed. It is a process. It's not an, there is an instantaneous reality to it. Yes, you were once united to Adam. You are now united to Christ. That's instantaneous. You were once dead in sin, you're now alive in the spirit. That's instantaneous. But there is a long process that now has kicked off in which all that once comprised your life in Adam has to be put aside and replaced with all that Christ is. And that's a long process. That's a lifetime's process. We don't belong to the old age anymore. We belong to the new and so we're not to content ourselves with being shaped by the old. Instead, what we have to do is we have to become transformed. We have to become like who we are in Christ. We're no longer helpless victims of the power of sin, right? Because what Christ has done in us, we have died to the power of sin. That's chapter 6. Now we're to live out that reality, right? Look back at it. Chapter 6, verses 3 and 4. Don't you know? All of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death. Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism and death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too may walk in newness of life. Verse 6, knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with, so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. Verse 11, even so, consider yourself to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Verse 12, therefore, don't let sin reign in your mortal bodies any longer, that you obey its lust. 
We're no longer the victim of sin. So we need to be renewed in our thinking. We need to stop thinking that way, begin to think about how we really are in Christ. We're indwelt by the Spirit of God, chapter 8. We need to begin to walk by the Spirit of God. This is the renewal process of the mind. Listen, the Christian life begins in the mind. It begins in the mind. As a man thinks in his heart, so he is. And so it is the mind that has to be transformed. That's why the Spirit of God uses the Word of God and preaching in order to to bring about the sanctification of the people of God. That's why preaching occupies such an important role in the public worship of the people of God because it is through the preached word that the Spirit of God changes me and changes you. He transforms us in that process by the renewing of our mind. We see it over in Philippians. Turn over the right to Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. Paul says there, So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence. See, it's about obedience, about the Christian life. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. God is at work in you and I, transforming us, and we are to cooperate in that process by the intake of the word of God. Psalm 19. Be reminded. Psalm 19, beginning in verse 7. It is the law of the Lord that is perfect, restoring the soul. It is the testimony of the Lord that is sure, making wise the simple. It is the precepts of the Lord that are right, rejoicing the heart. It is the commandment of the Lord that is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord that is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true, righteous altogether. They're more desirable than gold, yes, than much fine gold, sweeter than the honeycomb and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned, and keeping them is great reward. It is the word of God that the Spirit uses to transform his people. And as we take in the word of God in in large quantities, that the Spirit transforms us. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18, And we all with unveiled face, Beholding the glory of the Lord, being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. And this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. As we behold the glory of Christ in the pages of Scripture, we are transformed into the image of Christ. It is this reprogramming process. And it doesn't take place overnight. It doesn't take place overnight. It's it's a lifelong process by which our thinking is continually changed. We're resisting, we're putting off that old man, we're putting on the new man, to use the terminology of Ephesians 4. And it comes about through the scriptures, both privately and publicly. Should I read my Bible in private? Yes. 
Should I be faithful in my attendance in the public gathering of the church to hear the word taught? Yes. Is one better than the other? No. They are both essential. Essential for the growth in the Christian faith. Beloved, think about it this way. If I had a vial with deadly poison and I were to put it in your water glass and you were to consume some of that water, a mouthful of that water, it would kill you. But if those same few drops of poison were dispersed in a, in a massive swimming pool, it would become so diluted that it would no longer have that, that toxic effect on you. And that's kind of the way it is with sin. It's kind of the way it is with sin. We can't unsee what we have seen in life. We can't go back and undo that which we have done or not done in life. But what we can do by, by taking in massive quantities of the word of God and being transformed in our thinking is that we can dilute the influence of all of that. Gentlemen, listen. If you've got images in your mind that are tormenting you, the way to deal with it is to flood your heart and mind with the word of God and replace those images with the glory of Christ. And you will find that the torment begins to go away. We need to take in the word of God. That we may prove what the will of God is here back in Romans 12. We may prove, in other words, that we can, we can test out and discover Dakimadzo, the, the word of God. Or excuse me, the will of God. In other words, that we, can, we can understand how God would have us be. The, word, the will of God, that which is good, acceptable, and perfect. Paul goes on from here and, and elaborates, by the way, what is the will of God that is good, acceptable, and perfect to him? Beginning in verse 3, running through verse 8 in chapter 12, it's, it's a humble life. It's a humble life. Chapter 12, verses 9 through 21, it's a, it's a loving life. It's to be a loving person. Love others. Chapter 13, beginning in verse 1 and running through verse 7, it's, the, it's a submissive life. It's to be in submission to those in authority over you. Chapter 13, verse 8 through 14, it's a, it's a pure life. It's to make no provision for the flesh. To no longer engage in the things of the flesh. Chapter 14, beginning in verse 1, running all the way through chapter 15 and verse 13, it's a deferential life. A deferential life. In other words, it's to, it's to not fracture the fellowship of the local assembly over personal opinions, but to live in deference to one another. This is what's good and acceptable and pure in the sight of God. Beloved, God has given us here in, in these two verses 
four keys to unlock the Christian life. Remember the mercies of God. Relinquish yourself to God. Resist the world's corruption and renew your mind through the scriptures. Remember, relinquish, resist, and renew. These are the four keys that unlock the Christian life. Now we need to pray that the Spirit of God would enable us to stick them in the lock and give it a turn. Huh? Let's pray. Father, we ask your Spirit to help us to do what you want us to do. And so with great confidence we can come and and make this request. That you delight in hearing this request on the part of your children and you delight in answering it as any earthly father delights in giving good gifts to their children. Our Father, we confess that we often neglect the gospel through inattention and that we need to remember it and we need to be reminded of it and it needs to be regular. Our Father, we also acknowledge that we do not resist the things of this world, the corruption that is around us because we often have not relinquished ourselves to you in a particular area of our lives. We want to hang on to, to a few things, a few pleasures, a few baubles from the old life in Adam. And yet, our Father, you would have us recognize the reality that we are not our own, that we have been bought with a price. And that we need to relinquish all of that. And we then need to resist the siren call of the world to draw us back. And so, Father, I pray for my brothers and sisters, as I pray for myself, that you would strengthen us in the inner man and give us the, the courage to cut off whatever it is that's enticing us this morning. Turn away from it. Make, make the radical change, the, the metamorphosis, the transformation, as radical as a caterpillar to a butterfly. We would be free from whatever it is that's ensnaring us. And Father, we know that we need to continue to renew our mind through the word of God. Because the pressures and enticements of this world and the schemes of the devil are very strong. And on our own, we will surely fail. Oh Lord, hear our prayer, answer it. That the glory of Christ would be on display through us. We pray for his sake. Amen and amen. Well, beloved, we've given you a lot to chew on this morning for sure, okay? But we packaged it in a way I think that's memorable for you. Go in peace. Go in peace.